Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your week in sports car series, I believe I hear my co-pilot, my friend, my husky breather across the pond, <laughs> Graham Goodwin. Is that you, or is there a pervert listening in, breathing heavily? It's it's definitely not a pervert, um, and it's not the husky either. Uh, yes, new additions to the Goodwin family household this week. Uh, we'll probably be hearing from him at certain points in weekends to come. Uh, but good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world, and in particular, my friend, hi to you. What's the dog's name? Oscar. Is there yeah. a backstory behind that? Did you choose the name, or did you we, carry no, over? If it, if it had been my choice, he would have been called Norman, without a shadow of a doubt. I quite fancy a dog called Norman, uh, but uh, no, he came with that name. He responds already to that name. It's a three-year-old rescue dog. Absolutely beautiful animal, fantastic nature, um, and our first ever dog for all of us in this household, and he's a big boy. Well, Simon Pagino owns a little terrier named Norman. I fear Does that he? if your Norman met his Norman, uh, their world might have one less dog named Norman. Because it sounds <laughs> like he'd be a good snack. If anything, you'd have to go into the store and get some toothpicks. So, uh, and speaking of, I've got Rosie running across the desk, kicking over things. A.K.A. It's a normal podcast recording phenomenon Excellent. here. So, as we always do, dear listeners, and for those who might be tuning in for the first time, we apologize up front. This is, you know, I'm telling you, there's better stuff out there. Uh, We love what we do. Graham being a sports car reporter, the editor of DailySportsCar.com, being a man of Europe, he covers European sports car racing, the globe-trotting World Endurance Championship, many other things. Myself being a state trotter, covering IMSA here in North America. This is the thing we love. So we do this weekly listener Q&A-driven show. You send in the things you want us to discuss. Occasionally you send in your rants, your perspectives, often quite better than ours, through Facebook, (laughs) through Twitter, through Reddit, through MySpace, through Friendster, all kinds of things. Put them together. We get to as many as we can in a time format that always expands or contracts based on the amount that you send in. This week, decent amount, quite a bit of fun. Looking forward to getting to that in just a moment, Graham. But first, as we always do, we say massive thank you to our listeners for powering the show. And also a massive thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for making this possible with their support, love, and patronage. So speaking of love and support... As the official selecta of the categories, the racing series that we cover, where should we start, Graham Goodwin? I think we're going to go IMSA to start with this time, and uh, that tends to be the thing where I bowl them at you, and uh, you field them. There is one absolutely overarching uh, story that uh, dominates the IMSA questions this week. Uh, There are some nuances within them, but it's to do with Mazda Team Yost, and there's going to be a part of that moniker, uh, Marshall, that disappears in the relatively near future. What? No. When did this happen? I don't know. Oh, anyway, let's kick. <laughs> you want to kick off with a kind of summary of where we actually are with 
uh, things, particularly obviously to do with uh, the news that whilst TBO stays on board um, for the time being, after Sebring, that all changes. We think. Yeah. So of the various questions that we have, do we want to use some that maybe lead into the greater picture? Should we how should we break things down? Because this is a nuanced and multifaceted topic. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll run through some of the uh, the questions that have been asked the guys around the internet that have been asking them. Jerry Harding says, if the reports are true about a Mazda Yost split, how odd it would be for manufacturers to have two planned operators for a racing season. As a Mazda fan, feel reasonably okay. Uh, it seems to indicate that Multimatic was responsible for the great strides in making the RT24P run as well as it did. Joshua Ponce says, with... Uh, with hearing about uh, TMOs to Mazda parting ways, what does it mean for the Mazda DPI program? Are they going to not operate after the 2020 system has come to a close, or what? Uh, Philip J, uh, what happened between Mazda and CMOs? Was it always the plan to review the partnership after a year? Are they going to remain on the grid with another manufacturer? That would be Yoast. Uh, anything to do with John Doonan leaving Mazda? Um, Stephen Armstrong says another spit on the questions. Uh, do you believe that the TBO's operation is eyeing a return to the WEC laying groundwork for a hypercar program? More than one person has asked that. Gustavo Bamba actually asks whether or not um, we might see Yost continue in IMSA with another um, OEM. Wow. All right. So you set the stage here perfectly. Let me try and weave through these starting at the top. So the reports are true, Jerry. This, although... You might have seen things presented as could, might, may, as you need to do from a journalistic standard positioning. There has been no formal statement from either side that they will no longer work together. So completely understand why this could be received, maybe should be received as a question mark. I can tell you, since this is not adhering to anything other than the best motivations and leanings of myself and Graham on how to present the show to you. We can just tell you this is true. It's hundred percent true going to happen. Just going to start with the opening sentence where you mentioned if the reports are true about the split coming after Sebring, that is a point that could be modified to explain a little bit about the timing here. We've had a situation where the DPI program for Mazda, which was commissioned in 2016, was led by their former partner, SpeedSource, from Florida, a program that had done Rolex GT cars for them, LMP2 cars, both diesel-powered and petrol-powered. They did the GX cars as well, the one-year diesel-powered Mazda 6s that ran the vendor that was asked to take its biggest leap forward, create this DPI program working with Multimatic and Riley to turn their Mark 30 LMP2 car into the RT24P Mazda DPI. And the SpeedSource team, unfortunately, demonstrated that they did not have what they needed to deliver success. We had a situation, Jerry, where underperforming vehicle, underperforming crew, 
a lot of errors made in vehicle preparation, a lot of failures, a lot of wheels falling off. Uh, just it was a grand embarrassment to open the 2017 season. Mazda realized we cannot go forward, made the very bold decision to stop their season, as we all saw, Graham, early. We need to not only stop this, but we need to change vendors, have that vehicle redeveloped, come back next year in a much more competitive position. So the big news, obviously, was Team Yoast. The partners that helped Audi become kings of Le Mans before that won Le Mans with Porsche, long-time, very successful operation out of Germany. They were being hired after their Audi LMP1 hybrid WEC program came to a conclusion. They were hired to take over and run this program under the Mazda Team Yoast banner, starting officially on track in 2018. What was found rather quickly, Jerry, and this is despite having good friends at Team Yoast, and a great affinity for who they are. This was not the same team that made Audi successful. You could call it a talent drain, potentially. Now, there are many many things you could call it. The reality was the outfit that was a central cog in Audi sports success, that was what Mazda believed it was hiring, That is not what appeared and not what facilitated the running of the cars. In a piece that I wrote for Racer.com for the first half of 2018, if not maybe a little further into 2018, it was hard, Graham, to tell the difference between Speed Source and Team Yoast. Uh, Same comedy of errors, wheels falling off, all kinds of things that just, it was hard to fathom. We'd never seen Yoast look this poor, uh, this out of touch, out of depth, out of something. At the end of 2018, I had been hearing, end of the season, been hearing that there was a desire to see if maybe maybe the relationship, despite being relatively new, could come to an early end and a new partner could be brought in somehow. That did not happen. I believe it would have represented Graham. Just a lot of folks would not have been able to save face within Mazda, having made this big change from Speed Source to Yoast, and then after one racing season, changing again. It would have signaled or spoken to a number of folks making an error in decision. And so I believe that kept the relationship on track for 2019. But what did happen, knowing that there was no change made in vendor, is Moss said, wonderful, the one partner that we have in terms of the running of the vehicle and its performance in all aspects. So I'm saying that to isolate the engine side. The one vendor that we have that has been a star and stepped up and done amazing things that happens to be Multimatic. They make the car. They are fairly phenomenal in working with their partners. They also help facilitate the Ford Chip Ganassi racing team in Europe, actually providing staff and running the vehicles, as well as building those as well. And so what happened, the decision that was taken was to say, well, Multimatic, although most people think of you as 
vehicle creators and technical types. We actually want to engage you in a much deeper level and start bringing in big waves of your staff. The mechanical side, we're also going to give you the entire engineering aspect of these cars too. And so the changeover from 2018 to 2019, completely new engineering staff, all multimatic, all testing was done, everything, just handed off to them in its entirety. And at Daytona, for example, Graham, we saw that one Mazda was run by Multimatic's crew, and the other was run by Yost. So this change was afoot for quite some time. So we get to the opening of Jerry's question, and maybe this has answered a number of things here uh, that Joshua and some others have posed. The decision that there needed to be a change brewed and brewed and brewed, and we heard rumblings and rumors of this throughout the summer, right? We'd heard Chip Ganassi Racing. We know that their Ford GTE slash GTLM program is going away. We heard a number of things about Mazda meeting with Chip Ganassi Racing to take over their DPI program for 2020. That did not come to fruition, but that for those who heard that, read that rumor, those weren't rumors. That was reality. Those things happen, obviously, (laughs) not because the manufacturer is happy, but because they're looking for options. So the hand was tipped a long time ago that non-Yoast options were being explored. Getting towards the end of the season, here we know that in mid-September, that would be the Monterey IMSA date, I believe just a couple days after. I don't know the exact date, but I've just heard it's a, a day or two after Monterey IMSA. Yoast was formally alerted to plan to part ways. The other thing that I've heard, and this lines up with the timing here, Jerry, about Sebring, is there is some form of six-month advance notice kicker or clause. So rather than being able to cut bait and split right after the end of the season, the clock started whenever that notice was delivered. And the conclusion of those six months would come right after the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring in March. So that's what's led to this odd scenario of Mazda wanting to no longer work with a company that I realized that they won three races last year. Uh, Folks will readily say credit Multimatic for that happening. Of course, there were Yoast crew members going over the wall and doing pit stops and all that. So there's no need to diminish their participation in the success but as for actually getting the team to a reliable, performing, front-running effort, that has been placed upon the, the shoulders. Meritorious words spoken for all that Multimatic did once they were given the vast majority of responsibility for the program coming out of 2018 into 2019. So this is where the, the ongoing seeds of displeasure with Yoast did not reverse, just continued to go in that direction. So by the latter stages of the 2019 season, it had already been decided we just need to make this split altogether. We expect Graham to hear Mazda Team Yoast will be renamed Mazda Team Multimatic. I don't know, what whatever they come up with. But Multimatic will be 
the sole service provider running the cars, engineering the cars. It's going to be a multimatic effort in its entirety. It was felt like it had almost become that in 2019. Where the question here, though, on Sebring, technically, that's something they would have to do and honor that. I've heard that there have been talks about what kind of early exit buyout could we do. How do we get to a point, Graham, where we go into the 2020 season at Daytona with all Multimatic staff? The scenario that will happen formally by contract, if nothing were to change in the existing contract, at the conclusion of Sebring. There's other questions, which I don't have answers to, on the topic of, if we looked at IndyCar recently, Graham, with the skullduggery that's taken place with James Hinchcliffe, full-time driver for the Aeroschmidt-Peterson team, McLaren has come to join them, Decisions made despite Hinch having a contract for next season. They've opted to hire two new drivers, honor Hinchcliffe's contract for next year, and say, you're not driving for us, but we're going to pay you. It would imply there's a provision in his contract that said, did not state, and for the sum of money, you are guaranteed to drive a car at every round. What I don't know is in whatever contract that stands between Mazda and Yoast, is if there's a provision that says, and you must put your hands, operate, and be be involved in the running of these cars. If not, I would expect Mazda to pay them, as they're contractually obligated to do, through Sebring, while effectively having the entire Multimatic team run the program. If they are required to have some degree of Yoast involvement, then I would anticipate we would have something that looks identical to what we did in 2019 with vast Multimatic involvement, but still some Yoast, including the Yoast name on the cars and everything else. So what we're waiting to find out is if a amicable split could happen before we get to January and the Roar before the 24 and the Rolex 24 that might have Yoast officially wound down and gone <clears throat> from the entire operation. Uh, let's see. going to grab Joshua's question here, uh, asking, is the Mazda DPI not going to operate after 2020? I've heard nothing about change there. Uh, don't confuse the issues with Yoast with having anything to do with Mazda's desire to continue running this program. Uh, Totally separate things. This is service provider issues, not manufacturer's desire to continue competing issues. Uh, Let's go to uh, Philip JJ. Wondering if any of this had anything to do with John Doonan leaving Mazda. Uh, No, it's quite the opposite. As I understand, he was a, a central part of where this wound up. If anything, Joshua, I feel bad for new Mazda Motorsports director, Nelson Cosgrove, (laughs) who started Monday and on Monday was having to answer this kind of stuff. And Mazda's shielded him. He hasn't been made available. But uh, yeah, his first day in the job, he's having to deal with 
decisions made by the former administration and his new bosses as well. Um, poor guy there, but no, uh, nothing to do. The, the Dunin departing to become IMSA's president, that was in motion for a super long time, well before all this stuff came to a head. Uh, Stephen Armstrong, do we believe if Team Yost is on a return to the WC or laying the groundwork for a hypercar program? That would be a Graham Goodwin answer. I know of nothing, nor do I believe that Team Yost would be exiting their relationship with Mazda in any kind of high point or position of power and strength. Uh, the feeling here is this is an organization that's reeling and not being viewed as the all-conquering slayers that they once were, which could make it hard to pick up another manufacturer client. But I don't know, Graham, have you heard anything about them possibly going whack in hypercar? Uh, well, we do know that Mazda are interested. As for Yoast, not heard a word is the absolute honest uh, answer there. When we come to talk about the uh, future, though, uh, we're recording this uh, in the UK late Friday evening. There is an interesting meeting underway today, uh, which is not going to be linked in with Yoast, I don't think, but might well be linked in with what we see for the future. Well, there we go. Uh, let's see. What else can we do? What else can we handle? Uh, Chris Ward inquires about the relationship between Multimatic and Ganassi. Could something be rekindled there? Uh, yeah, there's more to report here. I haven't had the time to delve into it, but the initial response is no. And yeah, more. Oh, I'm going to invoke it. Let's wait and see. Uh, that's the first let's wait and see the episode. <laughs> I stole it from you, Graham. That's your last. line. Um, it won't be the last. Okay. Uh, let's see. Doug Holtzman. Um, let's see. Any rumblings in the landing spot for Jeff Brown, our, our friend, our co-host for uh, Inside the Sports Car Paddock, which I promised I was going to put out on Monday, and it's Friday, and I have not, so please, I'm sorry. Um, if not, it would make sense for IMSA to add him to the technical team due to his recent participation as a competitor and his general approach to issues. I like the way you think, Douglas. You know why? I made that same recommendation a couple of months ago. Um, where should we go next, brother? Uh, let's have a quick look. Uh, let's, well, it's, it's a simple one for you. We like a simple question. Damien, Damien Peachman. Marshall, best case scenario, how many DPIs on the full season grid for him next year? Well... If we're using best case scenario, 100 <laughs> as for the most realistic, unfortunately. And if we're talking DPI strictly, not LMP2, LMP2, well, we know that we're going to have two Acuras. We know that we are going to have one Action Express Cadillac. We know that we're going to have one Wayne Taylor Racing Cadillac. We don't know how many JDC Miller Motorsports Cadillacs we're going to have. They fielded two this past season. Things that I'm hearing, not saying they're fact, hearing, we can look forward to one full-time. Question mark as to whether the second will be a full-timer or just the Michelin Endurance Cup, uh, the four long races. So that puts us at, what, six-ish? I, I forgot to use my fingers when I was counting. 
Two, uh, two, two, two Acuras, one Action Express, one Wayne Taylor racing car, uh, one JDC. One JDC, and we'll that, see the that, other that one some rounds. So that's five and a half. We're going to have two Mazdas, so that takes us to seven. We're not sure if that third entry is going to happen. And if it does, was it part-time only in the endurance races? I've heard another thing recently that says its appearance might be more of a summer thing if it were to happen. So I'm not even sure if we include that. So that puts us at about seven and a half. Yeah. Uh, if we, ho- we hope our pal Ricardo Junkos can put something together to get on the grid for Daytona. Uh, so could that be eight ish? So, and I realize you asked Damien full season to my knowledge, barring some stuff coming out of nowhere, we're going to be down a couple, uh, just strictly full time. So if we by chance do not have two full time JDCs carrying over, but one, that's a loss of one full timer. We know that the number five action express car, that is, we're taking that off the grid as well. Um, we know that we're taking the core autosport Nissan off the grid. So we're down three right there. The Hunkos racing Cadillac was not full time, but we, again, I don't know if that's going to be there. So must admit concerns for sure concerns. And I think that's also leading not necessarily a question that was asked, but I'll just raise it quickly and folks can listen on both. Uh, com and dailysportscar.com. The catching up with episode I just put online with Wayne Taylor, he raises a point that I have been hearing more and more in recent weeks. It hasn't just been weeks, it's been for a while, but been hearing the, the push and call, Graham, for changes to the anticipated 2022 IMSA DPI 2.0 formula. And that is... Oh, I think I'm about to be arrested by oh. the uh, the BOP police for uh, talking. <laughs> up. Sorry, put your. All right, I'm putting my hands up. Um, take hybridization off the table. Get that expensive system, that complicated. Just let's not do it because it's not just the system itself. It's not just motor generator unit. It's not about just a battery, and it's not. A, it's not just, hey, we bought this off the shelf. We bought in bulk, and everybody here's yours, and here's yours, and here's yours. Right, you know, send your checks to IMSA. It is, where are we going to put it all? Uh, how, what things are we going to have to change and move? And so this last part, which I guess I should have mentioned up front, the other push that I continue to hear is what we have initially learned have been continually told Graham and believed is that IMSA in 2022 will have its second generation DPI formula to unveil. It will be not only hybrid, some sort of 40-ish, 50-ish horsepower electric punch to add to its the internal combustion engines, but those will be packaged in brand new chassis with more dramatic, more something bodywork and styling. The push by not just team owners like Wayne in our conversation, please take a listen, but from a growing number of manufacturers, that's the thing that has really caught me off guard a bit. I'm hearing from more and more 
If you go hybrid, good luck. We're not going to be there. And when you have that coupled with the call, by and large, from teams now saying, so the new chassis thing, yeah, let's not do that. Let's continue with what we have. Let's grandfather these, the first-gen DPIs for another however many years, but keep using those. Maybe we just do a styling, refreshing something. Different bodywork, more whatever bodywork over the existing vehicles. But the underlying point to all this, Grant, and this is, again, fascinating angle to play out, and I need to write about it here. These are things I should write about before I speak about, of course. Those two items line up with exactly uh, exactly with what our pal Damien Peachman has inquired here. Best case scenario about how many DPIs will be on the full season grid next year. Those numbers are going to be down. Down a worrying number, Damien. Costs are the problem. The reason Action Express is dropping from two cars to one, budget. No other reason. If JDC drops down to one full-time, what would be the reason? Budget. Why did Core Autosport come and play DPI for a year with their Nissan Onroke DPI and then leave? A couple of reasons. One of them, near the very top, if not the top, ooh, we have reached our privateer funding threshold. We know without understanding his full measure of wealth, we know that team owner John Bennett, a very wealthy man. Nonetheless, that very wealthy man who loves sports car racing and loves prototypes came to the conclusion during the season, huh, <laughs> I, I, had, I had yet to find my limit of comfort. It has just been acquired, and we are here, and I cannot see funding this out of my pocket beyond 2019. So here we have, in a couple of instances, year to year, where some folks have either lost funding and been able, unable to reacquire it elsewhere, or said, you know, the it's too, too far to keep doing this. Those things marry up Graham and Damien very nicely with the increasing calls from both teams and manufacturers to say, let's take a step back on what 2022 2.0 might be. My guess is we're going to be talking about DPI 1.5. Same chassis, save money on that. If you strip the hybrid part out, it's truly a very economical, a more economical route to stay. If there's a mandate to go hybrid, Graham, having to retrofit cars that were never designed to hold such a system on top of the cost of the systems themselves, it's going to be a very expensive proposition. So uh, don't be surprised if the current trend of where we're heading in these discussions leads to, in 2022, you're going to have some pretty cool-looking, different-looking DPIs than what you have seen, but they're going to look similar and sound identical because they're the same cars. That won't surprise me because at the moment, due to the costs, frankly, a lot of people are saying, nope, you go hybrid, we're out, or nope, don't go to a new car, can't afford it. 
just the reality we're facing right now, and we're getting the first evidence of it, what, in year four of this DPI formula coming in 2020 with a couple of cars falling off the grid strictly due to dollars? It's a bit of a wake-up call, isn't it? Um, and I guess the other point this uh, this comes crashing into with 2022 is how does that affect the current, well, good vibes about a global formula involving DPI 2.0 and hypercar in a week where we'll go on to discuss when we get to WEC. Yeah, I can't wait to throw those at you. Yeah, but I mean, that week with, with Peugeot, uh, that, it has to be said, shock announcement. Um, where does this leave us? But come to that, because that's going to be a very interesting moment, uh, interesting moment indeed. Let's run through another couple of IMSA questions. Um, RK24 Le Mans asks you, how is the car count shaping up for next year in each of the classes? Well, you've already dealt with... Uh, the DPI side of things, we've had a bit of a run through over the last couple of weeks with the improved numbers that look to be heading our way for LMP2, at least potentially uh, improved numbers for LMP2, uh, with PR1, uh, potentially two cars there, um, Performance Tech with, uh, I think, an indication they're coming back with their one, uh, Dragon Speed talking about uh, stepping up to a full season of IMSA LMP2 alongside their new partners, ERA, ERA Motorsport, Carl Tilly and Co. And then the potential program for Rick Ware Racing with the Multimatic Mark 30. They're the ones I'm aware of. Anything else you're aware of, MP? Hearing that there could be that second Pier 1 Matheson entry coming to light I don't know if that's truly going to happen. Spent a little bit of time on the phone with team co-owner Bobby Ergel. Uh, boy, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, we were, I was meant to ring him back, and I've failed in doing so. So I hope to get caught up there. A couple of the things going on behind the scenes I can't get into right now. I uh, also need to do some follow-ups on those items, depending or related to car count. Uh, P2, GTD, we know... You already know what's happening in GTLM with Ford being gone and what we're going to see in a reduced car count there. But GTD is going to be one definitely. That's the class that intrigues me the most because I'm hearing that there's some folks who aren't in GTD who are serious about being in GTD. Does that add cars or does that just fill some vehicles? whomever happened to be driving the whatever model for whatever team last year, the folks that were in it are out. New people are coming in. So those are the things that I'm now, frankly, we're (laughs) on the clock, Graham, uh, six weeks from now, seven weeks from now when the roar kicks off. I mean, we're going to know here before too long, Um, you know, usually middle of December. So exactly what the full season entry list will look like. So GTD, I think, is the one that stands out most in terms of potential development. And we already know, you know, we know some changes that have already come down, whether it is the new folks stepping into the primary Riley Motorsports Mercedes. Uh, We know of, you know, whether it's a team leaving, one that's still a question mark in Magnus Racing, if and what are they going to do? There's, you know, what's the lineup going to be at Paul Miller Racing? Yada, yada, yada. So there's, 
lots of movement still to be charted and mapped on that front. And that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Well, uh, on the on the that kind of very uh, that very kind of question, Michael Metropolis uh, says uh, ask rather about uh, Aston Martin and GTD uh, rumours that they are close to a deal somewhere. Asking which team they'd likely part, partner with. Do we think it might be a full season effort? It's an interesting one. This one, it's uh, one that blew pretty hot, then very cold, uh, then slightly more warm. Um, the key to it for me, GTD Racing, GT3 Racing Worldwide is, it is customer racing departments finding scalps and generally tending to find them by offering good deals to someone else's customer. Uh, is that where you think we might be for Aston Martin or are we going to hear a new name? Raising my hand here, not because the police are coming to arrest me yet again. again. The BOP police, I have no idea. And again, I realize that this is a Q&A show where we try and provide as much knowledge and information as we can. We also need to raise our hands with subjects like this where I strictly don't know. So I also embrace the fact that sometimes I offer no value to my own show. This would be one of those times. Uh, I'll add in, by the way, Nick Patakas adds a, a very similar question. I have an inkling of the organization that it might be if we can nail that down before next week's show we'll certainly try to do so um level my five. uh level <laughs> is, is he out yet is he Farnbacher out lulls. when does he when does he get parole um but um have i told you that if i had the money and time i have a vast desire to go and visit scott tucker in prison oh i think oh, no, that would be a good podcast i think it'd be great to do yeah. yeah i mean i don't know if he could talk i don't know if the warden would let him but yeah i don't know if i mentioned this it means nothing but he and i did email just before i think he went to the pokey before he went to uh, behind the good old bars and i do know that he while behind bars does email with people mm-hmm. i know this because i know some of the people that are involved in that so yeah it just intrigues me like Huh, that might be a fun one. And then I thought, because my mind is twisted, maybe there's a podcast series in Racers Behind Bars. So this, this <laughs> it's probably also a bad Skinamax movie too. Um, but you know, the, there's the stories of the bad things. Those are well known, right? There, there's not much left to mine in, in many of those instances. But we do have. One, what, Don Whittington, uh, you know, former famous IMSA racer, marijuana trafficker, and all kinds of things. He's back behind bars. He's in prison. Uh, Greg Lowell's, again, in prison. Scott Tucker, I just think it might be fascinating. This. You want to have a panel show? Well, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a live podcast I don't want to do. <laughs> yes. Um, I again, may, if I had the money, that's the problem. If I had the money to do it, I actually don't have the time. I mean, I can't leave home right now. I've got, you know, I'm in 24 hour care uh, mode. But yeah, I do endeavor at some point in time in the future, time permitting, to do a uh, state trekking prison-to-prison tour, and there's probably some other racers behind bars that I'm, I'm forgetting about. 
just go interview these people. See, you know, I don't know. It's untwisted. It might be garbage. I have no idea. But this is something that popped into my mind, and then I said it out loud. I, th- I think, you know, what you're looking at there is society is looking for role models. But I think in this case, we're looking for parole models. Aren't hey, we? try the veal. <laughs> right, let's kick on. Let's kick on. Um, Marshall, what budget estimates do you hear with each class of IMSA? How many of these non-manufacturer teams are running break-even or even profitable outfits? How many are strictly funded by the drivers? Probably easier to answer the first part of that in terms of budget estimates. That's from RS120. Let's see. The LMP2 budget, knowing that it's now, what, six races plus a seventh if yep. you want to do the Rolex 24, but it's a non-points paying event. You know, PR1 Matheson did a pretty cool little uh, graphic, infographic that put the budget at about a million and a half for the year. So that's really impressive. Granted, it's not a vast number of races, though. The DPI budget varies because we have manufacturers and customers the manufacturer side is impossible to answer because that's not a number that gets out or nor is it something that they provide when asked i do know that on the customer privateer side i've understood that it would be very hard to do things for less than about four million a year four and a half million a year full season full everything and that number's over five for those who are spending more, you know, truly going for the championship. Uh, running break even or profitable. It's interesting on that one because I would say the number is lower than ever. I just know of far too many team owners who are having to accept the fact that earning a salary, a decent salary, earning a good living out of doing this, that is, that's about the, the target to expect compared to I'm able to take quadrillions in profits out of the annual budget, and boy, we are super, super prospering. Keeping in mind as well that we have a you know, decent number of teams that are gentlemen, gentlewoman-owned they have businesses, meaning you know something where they come into this with some sort of success and start a team, co-enter a car, something. But they're not actually showing up to the racetrack like a Michael Shank, for example. That's this is his business. It's all that he does. His ability to pay bills, feed himself and his wife, and so on. It's all driven through running Michael Shank, Meyer Shank Racing. There's some others that have vested interests in a lot of other things, and also have a racing team. Racing team's profitability is maybe not as much of a, a big concern. I'm going to step out of, of IMSA here for just a sec, just to share this example, because I always think it's a really cool one. In the IndyCar series, there's a team owner named Dale Coyne. Perennial tail end program. Decided I'm tired of doing that. Want to step up, want to do better hire better people, have better everything. And his method of doing that was to switch from taking strictly pay drivers, often the dregs of the paddock, you know, can't get a meeting with any of the top teams, 
but their money certainly would help put Dale Coyne racing on the grid. They'd go racing and finish dead last, whatever. At least the racing was being paid for. Dale, a very successful businessman, said, you know what, I am going to take the profits from my businesses. I'm going to try and improve my businesses so I can funnel more money into my team so that I can hire at least one driver, elite driver, and go and try and do big things. That coincided with Sebastian Bourdais' appearance at Dale Coyne Racing and hiring his super championship-winning race engineer and really surrounding Bourdais with everything that's needed to go and compete and succeed. In the other car, the second car, it's been a pay driver of some sort, and Dale has covered about half the budget. I just find that I love the, I love the spirit behind this of him saying, all right, do I just keep doing the rent-a-driver program? Or, since I love racing and I do make pretty good profits in my business, and he's not a crazy wealthy man by any means, but earns enough to be able to do this, Graham, and he said, well, let me spend my own money so I can dictate more of my, own, more of my future and success in this sport instead of being subject to whomever turns up with a paycheck. And there aren't many of those people left in the sport, period, and especially in IMSA. It used to be kind of the norm, right? The wealthy business person, sometimes they were selling things that were illegal, uh, but the wealth, wealthy business person loved the sport, wanted to get involved, you know, Bruce Levin, Bayside Racing, classic example. The garbage man, <laughs> he was a waste disposal magnet in the Pacific Northwest, used those profits to buy Porsche 962s and 935s and do all kinds of gra- hire Jochen Mass, Bobby Rahal, and just go and do great things, win some races, have a good old time. The Jochen Masses relied on someone like a Bruce Levin, to supplement their income. You know, it was a nice little circle of life type thing. But the Bruce Levins, the Dale Coins, those folks are becoming a rarity in the sport across pretty much all forms. But since we're talking sports cars, probably seen it hit heavier here than any other form that I follow, Graham. There just aren't nearly as many wealthy, enthusiast, passionate, successful business types who want to come in, start a team, run a team, be a co-driver, be a something. Uh, It's hitting us hard, and I think that's another reason why we're seeing these struggles. Uh, Just throwing quickly here just a couple other quick items as well. I mean, the JDC side, the John Church with their DPI program, that's his business. I mean, he does other things in the sport, runs cars and other series, but this too is his business. He needs funded drivers, and sponsors to stay afloat. In their absence, things start to shrink. You look at Jim France. We've discussed this a couple of times recently, so I won't go and rewind the whole thing, but the reason the number five action express DPI is a thing of the past is Jim, with everything that's going on at NASCAR, running NASCAR, their reacquisition of the International Speedway Corporation, a lot of financial things, going on outside of IMSA meant that Jim could no longer fund his team. I know that it is, quote, owned by Bob Johnson. This is Jim's team. This is the thing where he put his money into it, despite the fact that he founded IMSA. I don't mean IMSA 2014. I mean (laughs) IMSA 1969, the original. Uh, Jim has been uh, unable to put money into the team 
and quote, his car is gone. The Jim Francis of the world, man, I don't know if we're ever going to get back to it, Graham, where we have this bulk of wealthy, passionate team owners instead of this is my bread and butter and how I make a living. And, oh, my God, you know, it's almost, you know, hand to mouth type existence. Balance is, is not what it once was. Don't know if we're ever going to get it back. Worrying times, and uh, with lots of other worrisome things on the horizon, both sides of the Atlantic, too. Uh, Last couple of really quick ones here. One from Sean Corwell, MP. Uh, He asks uh, whether or not you think an IMSA Trans Am combined weekend would work. If so, which round? Me personally, hashtag, he says. I think VIR would be a great track to host both. Oh, 100% VIR. Uh, Mid-Ohio, let's get them there. Uh, Watkins Glen, uh, Road America. I mean, the VIR would be blast. Mid Ohio, a little bit smaller, but it just that's a passionate base. Folks turn up at Mid Ohio, period. So that would be great. But Trans Am cars are meant for either short point and squirt street courses. Not really an option there since both of those street course dates for IMSA are actually. IndyCar dates, although I think Trans Am is at one of those, but I'm just trying to think of actual IMSA, you know, controlled dates where they're the primary. Need to be at tracks where they can stretch their legs because these big tube frame silhouettes with stupid power and howling sounds, these are just beasts that you want to see unleashed in their natural environment where they do outrageous things. They're not rockets through the corners. They're not meant to be. That's just kind of the fun, seeing folks trying to balance these beasts, you know, through corners without gobs of downforce and uh, perfectly optimized everything. Uh, I think the bigger track, something that's a little more flowing, something where you've got some real high speed, having to scrub off speed, you know, really tiptoe through some certain areas at high speed. I think that general mindset, a Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, VIR, Road America, those three for sure jump out as perfect, perfect places. It sounds like that's something you would like to see happen, mate. No. I might have, <laughs> I might have already seen that happen just a long time ago. Right. Final question is from Sean Caldwell. It revolves around driver ratings. When will the new driver ratings be released? Hopefully, Madison Snow gets dropped back to silver. Zachary Robichon stays in silver, so Faf can stick around, he says. I, it's imminent. It's imminent. I think it is. Dun, 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 dun. Well, I can tell you, in terms of the FIA driver rankings, the uh, the timeline was that the uh, provisional rankings were released just before the Portimao weekend, which was uh, the twenty sixth, twenty seventh of October, and that there were a couple of weeks for. A, an appeal to be put in. That's about last weekend. So uh, they'll be being processed, and my guess would be that we'll see those in the coming days and weeks. I have heard that there's a strong belief that Madison Snow will be back as Brian Sellers' full-time teammate trying to cool. defend their 2018 GTD championship if you consider... Madison not being in the car in 2019, in theory, he's coming back to defend the thing because it's the last thing he did. There's just a year in between that uh, Brian 
being just woefully, woefully uncommitted. Uh, his meandering eye going and playing with other drivers. What a perv. Um, uh, unfaithful guy. I tell you what. I think, Sean, again, think. Think meaning no actual valuable knowledge. But, yeah, there, there's a, a sneaking belief, suspicion, something that Madison will get back to Silver and then, therefore, back in the car. Robichon? If that guy isn't upgraded to gold... Or more, I will be surprised. I realize that, of course, no driver wants to hear that. Um, they always want to be silver, so they are most marketable. But I mean, if you look at the guy's performances, there's kind of, sort of, no doubt that Zachary Robichon has no whiff of pro am uh, in him whatsoever. So, yeah, one of the handful of true breakout drivers in 2019 in IMSA across any class. It was so awesome to see. It was just great to see the uh, the, the Porsche Cup, the Porsche Development Series, just prove that, hey, you can do well in a regional series, step up to full pro racing, and then just demonstrate that you're pretty darn special. It's always a question, right, Graham? Oh, look, this person's winning this spec region thing and you know it's the belgian this or the new zealand that and you go awesome congrats on the championship and or your many many wins i have no way to quantify your global talent and how you would fit in among the best and so often at least for me i dismiss a lot of those achievements as well good for you but you know i don't know if you're having to beat the best people to get there it's just great to see someone like zach step up to gtd full-time and go no 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 <laughs> i'm very special so be a surprise sean if he did stay silver based on his achievements oh uh, that's fair enough isn't it uh, whilst it does clip the wings the reality is that system is there supposed to add some balance in terms of that uh, net ability um that's my turn for the for now at least with him sir it's time for you to be the bowler and for me to be the receiver mate well uh, as someone who's born not, and I raised that, within no, the shadow of San Francisco, a, uh, the phrasing no, of not that. Not in any way in a, in a prison fashion, no. I'm telling you, you, you had visions of, of tucking in Scott Tucker, didn't you? No, All right. no, no, no. La, la, can I no? have that, that right. vision? No, no, no. All right. I told you, folks, we seriously, we don't know what the heck we're doing. Is this thing on? Have we been recording? I don't even know. <laughs> Graham, let's go to the lovely, the the acronym ladled category known as WEC Aslam Elms ACO. That is the World Endurance Championship Asian Le Mans Series, the ACO Automobile Club de l'Ouest, and the European Le Mans Series, your bailiwicks of coverage and knowledge. We're going to start with our pal, Jerry Sudduth. Hey, Jerry. If the Sao Paulo WEC race fails to answer the bell now and in the future, what would be the best, most viable option as a replacement round? The viable part, really, really key. Uh, should explain what this is about. So this was a story, rather bizarrely, was approached by a paddock colleague some weeks ago asking, what do you know about Interlagos? Uh, is that absolutely definitely going to happen? And at that stage, the answer was, we're hearing nothing different. 
Uh, that all rather changed when we arrived in Shanghai. Team managers were briefed uh, by uh, championship head Gerard Devoe. If you haven't booked anything, don't book it yet. Give us a little bit of a while because we're hearing some things against the contractual obligations uh, from the from the race organisers that we're not happy with at the moment. Give us some time. We're working on that. We're working on a plan B. So are we going to Brazil on February the 1st? At the moment, we don't know. Uh, the answer should be coming imminently. Um, where I think the answer, by the way, for uh, Jerry Roberts is, is twofold. One is what's going to happen for this season. And the second one is what's going to happen for subsequent seasons. They're very different questions. Um, the reason for that is we've got an established plan at the moment for the logistics that surround the current FIA World Endurance Championship. That means that wherever they do decide to go, presuming at the moment that, uh, that Interlagos is proving to be uh, a major problem, although it should be said the day after we left uh, Shanghai, the race organisers, as in the Interlagos end, not the WC end, confirmed that the race would go ahead. We're not hearing that yet. Uh, but what it does mean is you, everybody gets uh, effectively puts the stuff back into the containers. That gets shipped. Um, you've got a, a schedule that actually has the cars coming to Brazil and thereafter to Sebring. Realistically, therefore, after they left Bahrain, uh, those cars, that equipment, is going in one direction. And that dictates where you might reasonably uh, have that race. First things first, that's a wrong time of the year to have it in Europe, which means you're either looking something on your side of the Atlantic, MP, or something on the way. And the three circuits that I've heard mentioned as being potentially in the mix at the moment are Kailami in South Africa, which will be hosting the IGTC race, the uh, nine hours of Kyle Army uh, next weekend. So we'll have had very recent experience of what is a new international uh, race meeting. Uh, Mexico City. Well, possibly. We've been there before with WC. It were, certainly was on the wish list um, for teams to decide whether or not that was something you'd like to see on a future calendar, possibly not this early. And then one that came out the woodwork and I have to say I'm struggling to see why this would fit for any other reason than a stopgap is Cota uh, in Austin. So uh, that uh, fixture for the WC, never a real success. But in extremis and in crisis, could Cota be the answer to a question that nobody thought they'd be asking? Uh, no sense at the moment that the date will fall. No sense at the moment that the date will change. Although, of course, depending on what the solution uh, that comes, that might actually have an impact. The final thing to say is, of course, that is a date that clashes at the moment with the Bathurst 12-hour. Will that come into the mix? Not for the WC, I don't think. Let's see whether or not uh, we stick with the date, we stick with Interlagos, and if not, where might we be going? Trust me, as I sit here waiting to spend what little money I've got on air tickets to get wherever we're going next, um, inquiring uh, minds would like to know. Also have to wonder with Roger Penske's acquisition of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and an immediately 
expressed desire for sports car racing to return. Curious if IMS could be a WEC alternate as well. Do know, and as we've discussed here in the past, a couple of years ago when I saw uh, Gerard Nouveau and Pierre Fion on the grid for the Indy 500, and it was a really nice, I think I knew they were coming, but regardless, I hadn't seen them at that point. It was just kind of a, hey, hey, guys, doing? And so it was great to see them. And uh, they said that they were there to discuss the WC coming to IMS. I said, well, fantastic. Spoke with IMS CEO Doug Bowles, I think the day after the 500. Said, hey, by the way, bumped into uh, our friends from France. How did that go? And uh, obviously nothing came of it. And it was just funny for those who've heard me tell the story before. It was just funny to hear that the meeting went something along the lines of, so how much are you going to pay us to race here? To which the track said, wait, I thought we were sitting down for you to tell us how much you were going to pay us to host your race. And so the meeting didn't last long because both sides thought they were going to get paid for their participation when indeed neither side had any intent of actually forking out money, but both were looking to receive cash. Didn't go anywhere. Could Roger Penske be a catalyst for a change in philosophy there? Could he broker something that was either not too expensive for IMS or not too expensive for the WC? I genuinely don't know, but knowing that Roger is indeed a lifelong lover of sports car racing, it's where he got his start as a driver. Definitely believe he will have his ear on this to see if and how IMS might be in the mix if needed. Let's go Graham to... And thank you to Ryan Terpstra and Saloom and Kevin Payne and a few others uh, that inquired about the Brazil WEC issues here. Let's go to LMP1 at Shanghai. I don't know if you heard, Graham. There's rumors, rumors, unsubstantiated. A race was held there very recently. Uh, we're going to go to Nick Howers, who says this may not actually be a question. But anyways, while the principle of penalizing Toyota for being successful in the first two races goes against many things that seem appropriate, For World Championship, the resultant race was probably the most entertaining to watch since Porsche pulled out. Interesting for the whole race. And without the full course yellow, uh, there was, at least for me, a genuine chance of Toyota pulling off a victory based on strategy rather than speed is providing entertaining racing week in and week out more important than pure here's the rules, do the best you can in a historical way. Does this make it any better? And i got a couple other questions, and I'll parse out some more here regarding this. We do have a number of questions on the theme of Toyota didn't win. Holy cow. But the way that they, quote, didn't win might feel a little artificial. Should we be okay with that? Um, speaking as someone who actually watches these races for a living, yeah, uh, we should be okay with that. We've had... Toyota have had their fun, if you like, with the TSO 50. Um, We're in that transition. I think another season of utter domination would have been a major turnoff for the vast majority of people who would invest their time, energy, and at times their viewing budget uh, in watching a, a motorsport event. And something needed to change, no doubt about it. 
the success handicap system, which is not balance of performance, it is not equivalency of technology, this is not meant to balance the cars, this is meant to effectively throw the dice up in the air again after each race. And it, uh, it impacts the cars that are most successful in the previous race and the races before that, and therefore uh, the gap in the championship. What it's designed to do is to try to keep the championship tight. Um, and it does that by leaning very hard on a dominant car. We saw that. Um, and I know there's questions a little later in this list as to whether or not we think that Toyota might have been playing a game or two in terms of how much we saw that impact. That's possible. Um, you know, if you're going to put a system in place, you can be reassured that the smart guys and the engineers and the strategists will find ways that they think will let it fall to their advantage. This system will operate, by the way, in every WEC race for this season, apart from the Le Mans 24 hours. Okay. So, um, what do I think about it? I think it gave us uh, a glimmer of hope that we could actually see some real racing as this championship develops. Of course, Rebellion will now be hit hard uh, by the same process. Uh, the Toyotas, I think I'm right, will be roughly where they uh, they were at uh, at Shanghai. So the big winners were the team that were the big losers last time out, that is Team LNT. They will run relatively clean, while the others are running with a series of restrictions designed to make it very, very difficult to produce the lap times that those cars would be capable of. But before we go into anything else, by the way, MP, congratulations to Rebellion Racing. Whatever else was in play, they played it strategically very well indeed, and they run absolutely clean, and you can't do better than that. Very clean, almost like Swiss watches, just precision. <laughs> uh, let's go to Teflon Tim again, spinning on this LMP1 result. So, do you think the closeness of the P1s in Shanghai and their success handicap? What did you think about that? Tim says, hashtag me personally, is really pleased to see Rebellion take the win, although watching the action did give me a slightly uncomfortable feeling, especially seeing the non-hybrids fly by the Toyotas at such speed. Goes on to say, I think this is because we know that the Toyotas are capable of going about four and a half seconds faster, at least based on their qualifying last year. Another, again, shade to this. If you tuned in to watch your very first WEC race at Shanghai, probably super entertained for those of us who've seen races before Shanghai, if not the previous year, decade, you name it. Those of us with some of the mental baggage of what came before the success ballast finally paid off with a non-Toyota win could be some existential questions about whether this is right or wrong. So I know that again, we, we covered some of this, with Nick's question to open Graham, but how do you think this rebellion win will help some folks who are maybe troubled by knowing the Toyotas are just simply being dialed down to a, a pace that is so far below their capability that it maybe feels false or uncomfortable uh, to use Tim's word. Do you think the success of a privateer or maybe more privateer success could be the salve that moves folks past this? You think it might just be a sticking point that stays. I think they're all fair questions, but I think realistically you've got to 
decide what we're here for. We are here to see the best of the best actually win. But we've been seeing that with alarming regularity in a field that's not had a great deal of depth. We've got the privateer cars turned up last, last year, last season, for the um, the super season with the promise that they could go head-to-head. To be blunt, EOT, equivalency of technology, which was very different, it was meant to give everyone a reasonably rounded chance. It didn't. Um, for my money, that was a very flawed system. And what you had were uh, privateer teams that felt pretty cheated by it. Not least, of course, SMP Racing, who disappeared as a result and are probably feeling at the moment, damn it, did we push the button a little bit too quickly? Um, we've had that year and a half uh, in the super season with the two Le Mans 24 hours that went with it, beginning and end of the uh, that season. I think, actually, people are just hungry for a bit of racing now. And what you absolutely are going to get... Even with the the blow to the purest uh, the purest uh, sensibilities with this system, is privateers that know they've got a chance now. Not only have they got a chance, they've delivered on it. And trust me, Team LNC will be gagging for the same opportunity. But they absolutely know they've got to produce a faultless race if they're going to get there because the Toyotas are still relatively close. We, you know, we're talking. One of the cars was lapped, the other one wasn't. And that means that it just takes an elongated pit stop and the guys are all over you again. So it's not an absolute walkover, without a shadow of a doubt. It was pretty close to being a sensible level of competition. And I know because I've done the numbers for a piece I'm writing uh, prior to Bahrain, that if you add the numbers and take out the time that the, the Ginettas lost uh, in the pits, uh, because they again were reliable, but again, it was the if buts maybe's preparation uh, in the pits and the delivery in the pits that hurt them. They would have been battling with the totes as well, and had they done that, we could have seen something pretty awesome. Well, hard to argue that, my friend. Uh, let's see where shall we go on this theme? Hook Cookie Monster FL. Of course, we have to stop here. So Shanghai really brought out the acceleration versus top speed disparity between the hybrids and the privateers. Do you think this is what the FIA and ACO wanted with their BOP and success ballast? Do you think we'll continue to see the massive disparity in speed on the long straights? Says other series using BOP try to get cars to all hit a similar performance window. Says WC just seems to look at the overall lap time and adjust from there. Is that also something we might expect from hypercar? Great point, think, right? Uh, if everybody gets the same lap time, great, but yeah, yeah. maybe they look awful strange in doing it. Do you think that's what they want? No, they don't. I mean, I think this is the key is it's not balanced performance. It's not meant to be balanced. It's meant to hit them hard. It's meant to make it difficult. They're not looking to get uh, a parity of performance. It's actually something rather different. So you've got equivalent technology and balanced performance, which are sort of intended to do that. You've then got the success handicap, which is exactly what it says on the tin. If you're successful, we're going to make it more difficult for you to be successful. And the Toyotas at the moment are broadly at the maximum level of hit that they're going to take. To give you an idea what that that looks like, it's a fairly substantial weight gain. Um, 
And in particular, you're absolutely right, Cookie Monster. The big hit they've taken is on the hybrid boost. They are running 45% less hybrid boost than those cars have been capable of producing you know, a peak performance. And we saw that very vividly in the middle of the race when the Rebellion came together with one of the Toyotas uh, in a run for position and coming out of the final turn uh, at at Shanghai, there was a move made by the Tota. The initial boost saw it passing the Rebellion, but by the time the two cars had got to the line, it had run out of that boost, reduced boost level, and the Rebellion simply outdragged it to turn one. Um, I loved it. I have to say, I thought you know, I had a thoroughly entertaining four hours uh, calling that one with uh, you know my good buddy Martin Haven and that other guy, small guy, Scottish guy, turns up every week, um, and. For me, I think you've just got to make a decision. Are you going to embrace that actually uh, if you're one of the, and there were an awful lot of you, um, fans actually complaining about the dominance of Toyota last year, what do you want to see? I get it. If you want to see the biggest, the best, the most reliable, the highest performing, um, then you're going to be feeling quite robbed by this. If actually what you want is to see racing and an aspiration for perfection across a long-distance race, this is actually a better solution for right now. As for what happens with um, with the hypercar uh, regulations, that is different. That is balance of performance. And there, you're absolutely bang on. There, they've got to make a decision about whether or not producing a similar lap time is actually going to give you close racing or not. Mm. There you go, thinking and offering words based on intelligence. Damn you. Stop setting stop the bar job. too high for me here. All right, let's round up our wacky, wacky success ballast topic <laughs> with our man Ryan Terpstra. It says, how do we feel about success ballast and LMP1? I'm not sure I like it. He says, with hypercar coming, it seems like BOP would possibly be better mentions a couple other things as well for those who aren't fully aware share piggybacking off of ryan's comment here graham how this new implementation of a parity-esque type thing with success ballast meant to be a stopgap item compared to maybe the one and only way to go forward but how do you think what we see today, for those who don't know, how do you think what we see today will manifest when we do get to hypercar and, quote, balancing and or regulating different concepts? I think the answer is, I think this is going to help them. Hmm. Uh, I don't mean it help them in terms of this is the way they're going to go, but I think they're learning as they go. They're learning. What we certainly now know, unless Toyota are sandbagging like crazy, is we now know there's a tipping point for the performance of those cars. And they didn't know that to this point. They might have you know, been told things. They might have been able to crunch numbers, but you couldn't actually see it. Now they will have the data from exactly what's been applied to those cars in lots of different conditions, which is something we didn't have before. And if you're trying to put together a fiercely complex balance of performance um, process, actually having data about what a car with that much more weight and that much less boost 
is capable of doing has got to be a massive help, hasn't it? You know, we're, we're talking here about very different cars. We're talking about a car, in the case of the Rebellion, with something like 700 horsepower all the time compared to a car that doesn't have remotely that all the time but has the hybrid boost system and the four-wheel drive traction. So there's lots of things going on here that I think will help the balanced performance uh, process. It does need both systems and indeed the personnel of really high quality to have a prayer of this thing actually working because we are going to be moving into an era in hypercar where again it's going to be very different cars. Even if we we um, stick just with what we know at the moment in year one for the factory cars. Uh, and I'm not, by the way, going to be ignoring uh, Jim Glickenhaus and for that matter, the Bicolis guys for too much longer. We need to know more about those programs and those cars. But because the Aston Martin and the Toyota uh, that are due next season uh, represent two extremes, if you like. One is a prototype-based hybrid. The other one is a road car, GT car-based non-hybrid. They are going to be exactly what Ryan says, the opposite extremes of where BOP has got to find a solution to help those guys race. That is going to be, for my money, the very biggest test of the technical departments of the ACO, the WEC, that they've ever faced. I'm going to head to the start procedure topic here. Hmm. Nordic Racing asks, what is the point of having to wait for both green lights and the start-finish line before overtaking? Wouldn't it be much easier for everybody if it was free-for-all once the green lights are out? Uh, should I explain what this is all about if you didn't watch the race? Uh, Nordic Racing's uh, describing what happened at the very start of the four hours of Shanghai. In 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 other terms, it's a bit like you've got five dogs in the back of the station wagon, okay? And you get to the beach and you open up the tailgates and the, the, the most senior dog is the dog that, you know, he's the top dog. He's the one that's supposed to be getting out the, the back of the car first. But no, the three pups decide they're going to go for it, go for it large. And they're actually heading out a mile out to sea before he's even got his fat ass off the, uh, off the, the back of the car. What actually happened here, Norman Nato uh, in the rebellion, pole position with uh, one of the Ginettas alongside and a second row composed of the second Ginetta and the first Toyota. Norman Nato... Um, coming slowly to the line, the lights go green well before the lead car gets to the start line. Um, and away go the two Ginettas and the first of the Totas. The second one, I think, only didn't go because he couldn't see uh, beyond the um, the Rebellion and was then swallowed up, amongst others, by most of the LMP2 field. Um, off into a commanding lead they go, and some point into the second hour, those three cars... Uh, were dealt drive-through penalties because the rule says that the lights go green, but you must not pass the pole position car until after the start line. Here you go. Lots of questions about this one. I know Jacob Boehm and Dan Summerskill have also asked about this one. Them's the rules, guys. And I had a, an enlightening conversation with... Um, uh, with Bruno Senna, which is a piece on Daily Sports Car that explains exactly what Bruno told me. And he revealed to me that he and Norman Nato, who had never started on pole for a sports car race, he and Norman Nato had the conversation and 
Bruno Senna reminded him of exactly what the rule says. They will pressure you. They will be, you know, in your mirrors. They will be ducking in and out uh, behind, putting you under pressure to go. You control the point at which you uh, you, you, you go. You don't only get the advantage through pole position of being at the front of the field. You get the the advantage of controlling that field until that start finish line. So you go with your gun and ready. As it turned out, the rebellion had a massive problem in terms of getting heat in the tyres. But knowing, I think that they had that problem. Um, was it a strategy to make them go? It absolutely wasn't. But the other part of this is. The reason it took as long as it did to determine those um, uh, those penalties was because the stewards, the race stewards, wanted to be sure that what Norman hadn't done was to check up or break. He hadn't. He simply hadn't accelerated, and he's perfectly entitled to do that. The other three guys made a mistake, and that potentially lost Toyota the race. Brutal. Brutal stuff. Let's go to theme of... Encouragement for privateers, Enrique Brand, Neil Hardy, Kevin Payne, come in on the topic of, with Rebellion's win at Shanghai, do you think this may encourage privateers to pursue the top class? Or is it a little too late with the hypercar regs on the horizon? It's, I think it's quite an interesting one. I mean, it, it certainly has encouraged um, Rebellion. I, I spent some time with two or three of the, the Rebellion team, uh, both in the paddock and uh, en route home to the airport at Shanghai. Uh, they were buzzing, and it was great to see, absolutely buzzing, and it was great to see. Um, it, it's not going to dissuade them that actually having that second car at the end of the season is a good thing, is it? Um, particularly with you know at Spa, whilst this uh, system is still in place. Might we see the SMP racing cars try to find a way back? I don't think there is a way back for them, by the way, this year in the this season, rather in the uh, in the FIWC. But you know, um, might we actually see this encourage someone to take a look at that package for next year in a, in a grandfathered form? Well, I hope so because it's a very valid uh, package, third and untroubled at the Le Mans twenty four hours. I can certainly tell you that Team LNT are mightily encouraged by it, and they're going pot hunting. Um, for the rest of this season, on the back of this, uh, on the back of um, th- this system, so I hope so, and I hope it encourages people if they've got the budget, the wherewithal, to look at hypercar into the future as well. That's what this should be about. It should be about close competition. It should be about looking back to where we were in LMP1 in the pre-hybrid days when we had that really strong supporting cast of. Uh, of privateer teams, and it would be great to have that back. Loving where we are headed next. Regarding sandbagging? Coming from our pal Mateus Longo, very general, asks if you think Toyota might have been sandbagging a bit in Shanghai in order to get less penalty, sorry, success, wait, he says, for the next round. Uh, I think the answer is... There's every every reason to believe that they might be, is the honest answer. Uh, I would like to think that the way in which the data is actually collated by the uh, the technical teams that look after these systems, that they would see that, uh, that they'd be able to tell that. It was certainly absolutely the case that Toyota, in certain instances, were not pushing as hard as they were able to. We could observe that. We've got to actually – it's – 
much loved by very many people, really heartily disliked by, uh, by a, a, a small cabal, a new graphics package. But it gives us a lot of information that otherwise we wouldn't see. We could absolutely see um, with the cars, the Toyota's on track, that uh, they were not accelerating for the final turn um, at times. Uh, they were not looking for their ultimate lap time. Are they looking to game the system? Let's wait and see. Oh, we got to wait and see out of you. Good. Well, there's an advantage, you see, to, the, to those of us that look to analyze these things. We've got Bahrain next up. Bahrain traditionally used to be the end of the season. We used to have this fabulous party the end of the season with all the teams, all the mechanics there, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people on the beach in Bahrain. Lovely, lovely occasion. It's where end of the season awards were given out. It was a real bonhomie type thing we carried on with that as a kind of end of year uh, event but it also means i can go and get some of these guys drunk and find out what they're going to tell me oh, sneaky man a ah. couple folks graham wound up about the post shanghai exclusions right hey the gt 51 car yeah oh yay well hey yeah Richard Cooper, should the WC and the ELMS move the podium ceremonies to the morning following the round to increase the chance of getting the right people up there? Uh, let's see. Phil, can you make this my question for the next twist? Please, for goodness sake, this needs sorting out. I enjoy endurance racing, but it should be finalized before the podium. Oh, look, another one at a world-famous event that should have been addressed before that. Malcolm Scopes, F1 have made a big, big play. Uh, about something else that we'll get into in a moment. But, yeah, altogether, what do you think? Uh, can anything be done, or is this just a, a necessary, or a, I should say a unalterable evil that happens on occasion? Uh, it is absolutely uh, almost at the top of my list of things that there needs to be a determination, a solution, something better than this. It is not tenable that it seems to me that every other weekend, um, you know, we are spending our time till midnight in the press room waiting to find out what the result of a race that, that finished six, eight hours earlier actually was. That is a major risk for any major championship in particular world championship rules are rules absolutely agree completely agree with that but i've got to ask the question whether or not um in some instances the punishment is not fitting the crime the great example the one that keeps keeps coming back came in fuji where pole position in gtm for the uh, project one uh, Porsche with Ben Keating uh, lost that pole position because a grub screw was missing from the external door release. Now, the question I've asked, haven't had answered, is did that mean that the external door release did not operate? Not had the answer other than from um, a third party that tells me uh, yes, uh, it, uh, sorry, no, it didn't mean that the, uh, the external door release wouldn't open. In which case, guys, come on. You know, if it's, I get it that there's a potential safety uh, aspect to this, but if we're going to go down the road of such an extreme penalty for such a small technical error, then at that point it starts to lose some credibility. I, I do think this requires a some heavyweight 
internal discussion about what it is you should have as a tipping point. I know in the case of Ferrari, that was Ferrari's first ever win at Shanghai. It mattered. Uh, they've lost that when the car was disqualified. Um, and their defense was that it was, uh, it was to do with uh, accident damage during the race. I don't know. I've not seen the car. Uh, but am I getting as bored of this as uh, I know uh, some of our listeners are? I'm getting really, really bored of it, is the honest answer. I don't have the absolute answer, and it will not be an answer, by the way, for every single instance of this. But I do think that the championship organisers, the people who look after the sporting regulations, the people who look after the technical regulations, the people who enforce those regulations, need to get themselves around a table and get this sorted because this is beginning to be a major problem. If this is the second or third thing that uh, the fan base actually want to talk about, then, guys, you've got a problem that needs sorting. Let's go to... Malcolm Scopes says F1 have made a big play uh, this morning about their hybrid systems being the most powerful and fuel efficient in the world. But I understood that the LMP hybrids were considered better due to the less restrictive rules, which is true. Yeah. Anything F1 might say today due to the crazy reduction in electric horsepower in the Toyota TS050. Again, I, I can't say exactly what number of output is produced by the Toyota with the success ballast slash performance downturn. Maybe those numbers are close. But without that prior to such things, huh, <laughs> we had the electric boost on Audis, on Porsches in particular, and Toyota pretty much outgunning full major serious internal combustion engines in terms of their horsepower production so uh and the torque figures too so yeah i I don't know malcolm folks are always looking to say one thing's better than the other but yeah uh the the richest span of the p1 hybrid era i mean we're talking 500 600 700 electric horsepower on deployment just insane yeah, and remember, you know, in terms of the potential for those systems, uh, you and I sat around, sat around a table at All American Races, did we not, Marshall? <laughs> and we're given the numbers of the potential for that Nissan had it ever delivered what it was supposed to, uh, the Toro Track system. And what was that number? For Not for the overall car, but just the hybrid system. What was that number? I've got a clear recollection of it. Uh, well, again, the number that Toro Track thought claimed they could make available with a what they referred to as a double hybrid system, a double mechanical energy recovery system, 2,000 horsepower. Now, do I believe that based on the success they had with a much smaller system? No, because they couldn't make that work. So it sounded like a fantastic proposition, but also looking at the system that did go into the ill-fated Nissan GTR, GTLM, G1 Nismo, GTR LM Nismo GT, uh, it, that mechanical hybrid system was the size of a basically a 4-liter Porsche flat-six motor and looked like it w- might have weighed more. So I would guess that whatever they dreamt up that could make 2,000 horsepower to bolt into a sports car 
would be about the size of a sports car. <laughs> so maybe it would be some sort of old school uh, caravan racing, you know, circle track thing kind of deal where you have your LMP1 hybrid and then there's a little trailer hitch at the back where you tow the uh, the, the vehicle, the car size. Hybrid system. Hybrid system? Yeah, uh, I'm not exactly sure. But, yeah, it was a great number to hear. You and I were impressed. And then months later, we weren't because car no work. <laughs> Good. And, yeah, idea. I mean, look, you and I could announce right now that we're coming up with the uh, the Goodwin Pruitt track mechanical ERS system that makes 20,000 horsepower. It's as real as theirs was. So there you go. I'll bung in just for the moment, by the way. Uh, just a moment I had this week. I uh, went to a preview showing of the Ford versus Ferrari movie uh, with Goodyear this week. And uh, Phil Remington features very heavily in that. You know, obviously, uh, so I'm playing his part, of course. Had the privilege to see Phil Remington's workbench still there, still has the lights on at AAR. Uh, during that that period of time, and look at that, 1966 around to 2015. Uh, what a hell of a life! What a hell of a career! Absolutely. Let's grab a handful more of our Weck Asm Elms Echo here. Maybe moving into a less structured thematic front. Uh, where should we go? How about our pal Jacob Bame, LMP3, Adis's 2020 Challenger? How's it coming along? Uh, right, well, I've uh, been speaking to Stefan Chausset, and uh, I have a piece in preparation. It is late. It should have been done at least a week ago, but uh, what with Shanghai and Huskies, uh, it's been a busy week. Uh, and I'm off to Shanghai again on Wednesday uh, for my sins. Uh, the answer is the car is going to be out and testing. There will be details of that test and the opportunity for, for drivers to join that test. Um, we have at the moment, uh, I believe, Two cars with proven um, non-issues, one with a significant issue, and then the Adess that we just we just don't know. Lots more to come. That LMP3 piece is going to be worth reading if you enjoy following those little prototypes because the 2020 cars, it is not at the moment easy sailing for at least one of the four uh, manufacturers, and that is not a story that's been told elsewhere yet. Let's see. Let's go to Gil Onif. I like this question, by the way. Ask a couple things here, but going to jump to the, does Glickenhaus develop the Alfa Romeo engine in use that they have planned for their car, car, hypercar? Is Or is there a deeper relationship with that Italian OEM, considering the Alfa V6 is related to the 488 GTE engine? Uh, the answer is no, there is a tuner involved in that program. Uh, I know exactly who that tuner is, uh, but that falls subject at the moment to some confidentiality that I've agreed with Jim Glickenhouse around uh, some further details of the Glickenhouse hypercar program. But no, in addition to the podium engineering concern that we'll be building the cars, uh, there is a separate, uh, very professional tuner uh, involved in preparing the engines. That's good because if they hired a very unprofessional tuner, that would be a very that would bad be terrible. Yeah, I mean, I would, yep. I would have to say something critical. Uh, let's go to an item here that I don't know if I was smart, I probably would have moved to the front of the show, but I'm not, so I didn't. And here we are. Gimme clout or gimme C10 
UT, I don't know. What impact, if any, do you think the Peugeot commitment to hypercar will have on the talks of DPI 2.0 integration alongside hypercar at Le Mans? Uh, we're we're going to need to park here for a little bit because this is a really good one that covers both sides of what we do. Uh, indeed. So let's let's kick off with the Peugeot announcements, its timing, its nature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Holy shit, I think is the answer <laughs> there came absolutely out of nowhere in a tweet and a series of tweets um, clearly caught the Peugeot Sport Operation uh, and the people who look after their uh, their social media by surprise as well because they initially announced it was a hypercar for the World Rally Cross Championship. They got the, uh, the hashtag wrong. Um, it's, I think it's an absolute game changer. Very clear to me why this is happening. This is PSA, Peugeot Citroën, now, in, of course, involved as well with what were the assets of GM Europe, the Opel Vauxhall concern, and currently in discussions uh, for a merger and acquisition of Fiat Chrysler Auto. Um, they've been uh, signposting their willingness to be at world championship level with something, uh, but the timing caught everybody by surprise frankly including the FIWEC uh, who I don't think I think I'm absolutely certain were not warned this was coming for me it's pretty simple this is an opportunity for Peugeot uh, to take a step up the timing shows that they would be in in time for the 2023 Le Mans 24 hours the centenary of the Le Mans 24 hours with a French make <laughs> well Form an orderly queue if you think on the back of that we might might hear something from their friends at Renault as well. Let's wait and see whether or not that's the case. Uh, but it's a game changer insofar as whilst everybody's been talking about Ferrari and McLaren and Porsche, Peugeot, because of their game playing in previous years, had simply not been taken seriously. The only place that Peugeot had been mentioned was a story from our good friends at Le Mans Libre, the uh, regional newspaper in Le Sartre, who were talking about Peugeot being one of the OEMs that uh, Orica was looking to interest in their customer hypercar program that uh, they were looking to sell into their good friends at Rebellion Racing. This is not that. This is a full factory program. The guessing games that were going on in the immediate aftermath of the announcement were incorrect. It is a full factory program. We know very little else, and we're going to be having to wait some weeks uh, before that. Why is it a game changer? Because it's two heavyweight OEMs, PSA and Toyota, Yes, we've got Aston Martin, and yes, we've got the, the minnows at Glickenhaus and, um, and Bicolas uh, too with that. It's a game changer because could this, Marshall, could this persuade Ford to come forward? It might. It might be something that's big enough uh, for Ford to come forward and say, actually, what we've got now is relevant competition. Would they still want to go forward with DPI 2.0 with or without uh, hybrid? Um, the more I think about this, the more I think about the potential for this, and, the, the, yeah, and with the information you were sharing with the listeners earlier in the show about the doubt as to whether or not hybrid will feature in DPI 2.0, I think the phrase game changer is not too large. Um, it is, however, a full two seasons away before we see this car. The takeaway that I had from this announcement, which is 
the thing you and I have said, not specific to Peugeot, but just there needs to be another major actor involved. There has to be, yep. you know, it. this has to launch with three to four significant constructors to v- validate this. No disrespect to Glickenhaus, etc. Big brand names that say we're going to be in because we see value. That will not only legitimize this direction, but I believe be the agent that brings others, other manufacturers wanting to get in. That's perfect. That is great. On a domestic front, the other thought was this might end any real motivation or belief that engaging with the Americans to have DPI 2.0 show up and compete at Le Mans or do something, not blend, right? Not try and BOP the DPIs into hypercar, but just truly have them come along in their own class add to the numbers, make some money off of the Americans. This is something we might need to do because our car count won't be there. Our legitimacy won't be there. This is a really quick way to get Acura, Cadillac, Mazda, some others to uh, likely come and play. I don't think that's going to happen now. If it does, I mean, I hope it does, but if it does, I'll be very surprised, Graham. I think with Peugeot and Aston and Toyota, et cetera, et cetera, I think they're in a place where they can say, all right, this is trending in the right direction. Let's just focus on us. I mean, the the desires for unions with things that don't match tend to come from a place of recognized weakness, right? We are, we're not going to survive and or pick the various ills that could happen. Wrong things are going to take place if we turn up and launch this thing without it looking big and strong. How can we game the system a little bit to get some extra manufacturers involved, get them in and around our cars? Even if they aren't our cars, we can at least say, hey, boy, look at all the brand names that are involved. I just don't foresee that need being there with Peugeot coming in, knowing that uh, although those vehicles are not sold in America, it is still a big international brand and one that, what, as recently as 2000, was it 9? Or am I forgetting? Was it 11? Whatever year that they won Le Mans most recently. Uh, this is Nine. A, yeah, this is, a, you know, the, the national brand coming back to a place where not too long ago, 10 years ago, they won the race. So I just see all kinds of great stuff here. This is the big, big change that the ACO and the WC have needed to legitimize hypercar. And if I was them, if I was, you know, within their organization, uh, not as an American, I would be questioning why we would need to continue to talk with the Americans about their DPIs coming over here and just stick with their plan. Cause now it's strong. Wasn't before now it is. There you go. And uh, by the way, uh, in another bizarre uh, twist here, it should mean, should Persia actually be on the grid in 2022-23, full season uh, WEC program, it means that they will race in sports cars for the first time with a hybrid car because they've said it will be a hybrid, prototype-based uh, hybrid, having actually produced two completely different hybrid sports cars that never raced, the 908 HY and the 908 Hybrid 4. 
Uh, the HY never really found a rule set that was uh, that was uh, relevant for it. That was pretty early on, 2008. And the 2012 car, the Hybrid 4, that was, well, just about to get into its solid testing regime before the inaugural WEC, never raced. So it will be the third time of asking for Peugeot to have a hybrid race car at the top of the sports car racing. What else you got for me, MP? Well, Graham, I have an Asian Le Mans series question for you, courtesy of Luke Filippone, who says, Hello, gents. It's nice to see a large uptick in entries for this season's Asian Le Mans series calendar. What has led to this year's surge in popularity? Um, commentator. I think, a- I think. I think the commentator. Uh, it's so good looking. He's so good looking. And that British guy as well. So I think the answer is it is a it is a, a number of things. Number one, we've got the um, the new newer the twenty seventeen spec Gibson LMP twos for the very first time this time. There are going to be seven of those on the grid um, from a uh, wide variety of teams. Um, it's going to be a nice mix of chassis to. Oracles for Ligiers and Delara for the full season, those seven. So, number one, it's given people the opportunity um, to expand their efforts and to try to get that auto entry for Le Mans. Um, we've got, in the GT class, I think we can actually lay that one firmly, squarely at the door of Car Guy, who won the title last year and went to Le Mans at the first time of asking. That's been, uh, evening Rocky, uh, that's been a massive plus uh, for the Asia Le Mans series race organisers. And that has resulted in eight of the nine cars that are actually going to be on the grid coming from Asia in, let's face it, what is a fiercely competitive marketplace with World Challenge Asia, with Challenge GT, and a number of others. But the, the, of the nine full-season GT cars, eight from Asian teams, all of whom would be looking to try to go to Le Mans. And I think we can have some guest entries and a reasonable number of guest entries at more than one race this season as well. So what you've got are teams that are looking to give drivers and driver squads more seat time in advance of next season. You've got some teams that believe they might not be on the invite list immediately for the Le Mans 24 hours, giving it another shot. Stand up, Thunderhead by Carlin, who've had a difficult year in, in Europe, but taking their Delara um, with Harry Tinknell, Ben Barnicote, and Jack Manchester to Asia for another crack at it. Uh, you've got teams like Inter Europol, really successful in LMP3, uh, but looking to establish themselves in LMP2 still, uh, stepping up to two cars there. But for me, the biggest step forward is it's beginning to get traction in Asia. There is a very large proportion of the entry this year that either the teams or the drivers or both have got Asian and and Australasian, for that matter, uh, heritage, and that, to me, is a breakthrough moment for the championship if they're beginning to get effectively a homegrown core entry. That's a massive thing to take them forward into future seasons. I'm going to go to Right Turn Lover. How could we get through an episode without a question from Right Turn Lover? Has anybody heard from SMP Racing? Because that could have been them winning at Shanghai. What's the word? Have we heard from our Russian friends? Are they angry? Uh, Are they protesting oh, the result angry. because they they're wanted to run angry. it over again and win? 
Well, I'd heard that they were interfering with the results of the uh, the FI World Endurance Championship. No, that's not fair. Um, now, the the answer is they're still active. They're still active in lots of different racing. And let's not forget, um, in the Team LNT Janetta, Igor Rudchev is still a team, uh, an SMP racing driver. Uh, still has very strong affiliation with uh, the uh, SMP racing squad. But no, in terms of the that squad coming back, I'm pretty certain that the core rules don't allow that. Whether or not if they decided to come back with two, two cars for the latter part of the season, uh, they would be allowed to do that, I think would be an interesting question to ask, let's put it that way. Um, but at the moment, my understanding is the core rules do not permit it to happen. Going to close Weck Aslam Elms ACO with Matt who says, so after the recent success of the ELMS at Barcelona, could we see a WEC and ELMS round happening at Barcelona next season in a similar format that we see at Silverstone? I hope not. I don't like Barcelona. I think it's. I don't think it's a very interesting circuit at all. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I think. Well, you know what I would like to see. You know, you're absolutely right, Matt. That you know what we've got is that double header at Silverstone has got something in exactly the same way, albeit in a rather more supercharged fashion. So has the, I know we all hate it, Super Sebring. Um, I would like to see the Asian Le Mans series sharing a bill. Well, hopefully with Shanghai. If we're going to do Shanghai, let's do it properly. Let's do a double header there rather than me as all having to go back twice. Um, but uh, two double headers in Europe, that might be a little bit too much. I, I, I think I may have said this on the show before, by the way, but I'll say it again right now. What I'd love to see for the European Le Mans series is a kind of festival at the end of the season, maybe a non-point scoring uh, festival, but linked in with testing and then linked in to the Asia Le Mans series. And I can't think of a better place to do that than Yas Marina. Uh, bring the LMS for a season ending um, you know, party round, if you like, then have the circuit open for open testing at the end of the season. It's always valuable for the teams. We saw that in Portimao this year and then have the Asian Le Mans series the following weekend. I think that'd be something that uh, would get me to spend a week and a half in, in uh, Abu Dhabi. We're moving to fun and Hegenerau. Fun in general Hegenerau. to close the show. Got about 15 minutes or so, Graham. Where should we start? Let's go for the top. Uh, Justin, same price. I'm running the Aston DTM program. Uh, Justin wasn't very familiar with our motorsport. Their debut campaign in the DTM was, to put it mildly, a disaster. What in our motorsport history suggests they'd be capable of running a WEC program? Justin, I think you've got to look at the, uh, the partners that they have in their other programs. Now, forget for a moment DTM. I don't know enough about it to give a, a qualified comment, but their their GT3 program is run for them by a combination of Arden Motorsport and Jota Sports. Uh, Jota Sports uh, hugely capable. Just won, of course, LMP2 first Goodyear win uh, in WEC history uh, in Shanghai. Arden Motorsport making it clear they're stepping away from F2 to do other things. Um, that is a very powerful combination. You look at the talents in the garage and on the pit wall for their GT3. Uh, 
program with Aston Martin and you start to see where that talent is going to emerge from that will carry them forward for the expected hypercar program with the Valkyrie with a two-car effort expected there. Um, they are far from a joke of a team. They very, very nearly won the Bathurst 12-hour. Um, they've taken on, in fact, uh, was reading today, uh, Luca Giotto, another F2 star, uh, has had some time aboard the uh, the Ginetta in LMP1, but he's going to be doing a full season in GT3 with our motorsport. This is a team that is ramping up for the next stage forward, and that will be the WEC. What about one for you here? Let's... Uh Okay, Andrew Backer says, if Roger Penske buys the Circuit de la Sarte, who leads the breakaway series and how does uh, Split 2 Sports Car Boogaloo play out? Sports Car Boogaloo. I love you, Andrew Backer. Let's see. You know what? We learn. We come to learn the most improbable thing has happened. Jean-Pierre... Now, Jean-Marie, I'm, I apologize. Jean-Marie Blessed Jr., the unknown son of the former hated head of the FIA, in particular looking after Formula One, but also menacing the ACO in the 24 hours of Le Mans. Jean-Marie Blessed Jr., who no one knew existed, comes to the fore and insists through vast money that his father secreted away the truly one of the wealthiest Frenchmen on the planet unknown though he comes forth buys circuit de la sarthe leads a breakaway series adds in quadruple new chicanes right so that's the initial plan it then moves to the big fight in split two sports car boogaloo says, you know, we're not just going to quadruple the number of chicanes on the Mulsanne, that being one of the primary drivers that blessed his father back in the day led this move to ruin the Mulsanne straight with chicanes. Bless Jr. comes in and decides, you know what, I'm going to continue my father's work, my late father, my impassioned family lineage and history has led me to use the money that he stole to buy the circuit, and there's a fight with the locals. There's a certain consultant that's been hired to to help this. Someone that we know, of course. I'm... We know he. it's a show sponsor. Christoph Bouchou is hired. He plays the henchman, right? He makes all this happen. They turn the entire circuit, not just the Mulsanne, but every straight patch of road into a continual chicane. That's the movie. That's what the fight's about, to either retain the current circuit or actually turn it into 8.5 miles of chicanes. This is all the very evil. This this is not a Belgian doctor evil, but a French doctor evil, basically. Jean-Marie Belles' son leads this horrific, horrific change to Circuit de la Sarthe. And so what happens with... Christoph Bouchou playing the baddie, trying to make all this work. We have great drivers. Hugh Chamberlain is actually leading the renegade band against this, <laughs> assembling a fine form, right? You think you've got a big hammer? We've got a much bigger hammer. Hugh Chamberlain leads this renegade band, pushing back, going against 
that Rocky as well. You can hear he's wanting to get in on it. Little this it's a weird twist. It's a little M Night Shyamalan. The ghost of Tom Walkinshaw gets involved. Haven't figured out that part of the script yet, but there's definitely a a, a Scottish face and voice coming out of the clouds to help steer some of the decisions here. But a merry band from the UK drive down sports car entrance of old drivers. Uh, Richard Atwood, for example, definitely there. Many, many, many. I think we probably get some Dutch Dutch folks coming over as well. Eh, not so much sure about the Italians. Eh, not totally sure about Spanish, but uh, Danes, probably a lot of Danes coming over as well. Tom Christensen ends up being the uh, the overall group representative, and they push back and fight. And how is this settled in Split 2 Sports Car Boogaloo? The only way it could be settled, breakdancing. It's a dance-off to determine whether Circuit de la Sarthe becomes eight and a half miles of chicane or left as is. I'll leave it up to you, Graham, to decide the end of the script. Who wins? Uh, there's going to be a Michael Caine line in there somewhere. I, I, I want a pint of what you're drinking because it feels marvellous go absolutely excellent stuff mp let's move on and let's see grim brother one what are some of your favorite what could have been cars cars that either never delivered on their promise or hope ones were just unfortunate enough to run up against a juggernaut despite being otherwise well put together he says uh, some of the ones that come to mind for him are the audi r8c beautiful car in 1999 the orica chrysler lmp1 in 2001 hmm. what, what comes to mind two, yeah what, what comes to each. mind first for two you each. Um, it's, it's, I have to tell you, it's the Nissan, the GTR LM. Mm. Uh, it's that had so much potential. Um, had they got um, the uh, the engineering right, but they just didn't, I'm afraid. But uh, in terms of the ability for real innovation to motivate people to just go along with that idea, I just thought that was just a spectacular moment in motorsports. Uh, it's just such a shame it, it, it you know it didn't crash and burn it did burn a little bit but didn't crash and burn that one for for certain the r8c i thought you know i think exactly as you did i thought that was a a marvelous marvelous looking thing that uh, that just did not have the development time that was required <sighs> they're probably the two you know in, in kind of modern era they're probably the two the other one Oddly enough, I saw a picture of it because uh, there's a car running again. Uh, it's the final year of the Cadillac LMP, mm. um, the, the, the Audi LAC. And again, lacked the kind of development budget, but that was a good-looking car in its day and a great-sounding car in its day. That was that kind of era where it's a little bit like 2015 and Nissan. You had to throw something at it. Uh, Cadillac decided to go down a road of effectively trying to learn all the lessons that the um, that the uh, that the Audi had taught them. Whereas, frankly, Nissan decided we've seen all those lessons; they look boring. Let's do this. Um, you know, it, it was effectively the kind of ecstasy fueled night out compared to the pipe and slippers of the Cadillac, but both realistically had the same kind of issues around development. Didn't quite make it either of them, but uh, good, good try. Great to watch. 
I would say if we're going to pick something modern, I would say the Delta Wing, the original Delta Wing that competed at Le Mans, really wish it had not been knocked out of the race so early because it felt like it was on the road to something unique and important in terms of a result. I, I would have loved to have seen that car manifest what it looked like was going to be possible. So I'm sad that that didn't happen. If I look back and maybe go back a little bit farther, I'm trying to think what comes to mind of things that didn't. You know, let's go GTP. That's my era. Uh, I'll say the both the March Buick, the uh, the kind of factory Buick, GTP entry, possibly the most powerful GTP motor, V6 turbo, that just blew up constantly. And also the Corvette GTP program. Both had very modest success. Uh, the Buick had a lot of poles, then a lot of explosions. The Corvette, I think, won a race or two off the top of my head. These are both factory efforts. The, the Corvette run by... Uh, Rick Hendrick, probably the biggest name in NASCAR for Lord knows how long. Uh, Again, great potential. Never really came to full fruition, though. Looked great, sounded great. The Buick as well. I mean, these were... These were... These cars teleported between corners. They were so fast. But the reliability wasn't there and or development. The March had stopped being the chassis to have... When the Buick program really got up and moving, the Lola-based uh, Corvette GTP, the Lola was more of a flexi flyer. When Nissan got its hands on uh, their GTP program, they redid their Lola all just completely. Uh, never really saw that happen, to my knowledge, with the Corvette program there. So, yeah, those are a couple of really cool GTP cars. Looked great, went super fast just never got to victory lane uh for the buick ever but really didn't visit victory lane or trouble the podium very much and yet had what appeared to be all the ingredients to do it but reality showed us slightly different outcome let's see let's go to sad boys to men (laughs) bbd abc um we still have seven weeks or so left. How, however, in your eyes, what are the positive takeaways from this year, both on the left and right sides of the Atlantic? And Sad Boys to Men also says, and let me know where to send my address for the Stephen Kilby Fan Club swag. Mm, well, the uh, the extensive collection, Stephen Kilby collection of uh, the weekend sports cars and inside the sports car paddock. Um, memorabilia, I think. Uh, public toilets well. have addresses because the yeah. the toiletries contained in there with steven's face imprinted upon them i don't know if there's an actual address <laughs> so. <laughs> shots fired for no particular that reason it's my damn absolutely. show Woo-hoo. well um positive takeaways um my positive takeaway for the year is it has been a great season uh, and about to start another great season for the ACO's supporting categories. It's been a tricky year for WEC, but ELMS has been awesome. 
it looks like being as awesome, if not more awesome next year. Lots of positive news sitting in the background there. Um, thoroughly enjoyable and breakthrough Asia Le Mans series. And it's looking like that's going to continue uh, into this season. And the Michelin Le Mans Cup uh, has developed its own personality as well. And I know Johnny Palmer and I have had a thoroughly good time uh, bringing that to a wider audience. So the ELMS uh, package, if you like, and that'll be expanded into next year with the new Leisure European uh, series, uh, is beginning to get a life of its own. It's beginning to get more of a following. I think that's a really positive thing. The final thing I'd say is the IGTC. It's got it's a work in progress, but there is something about that format uh, that if it is grown sympathetically with the uh, the organisers of the individual races that actually can uh, put together uh, for the IGTC has the opportunity to be much much bigger than it currently is. I'll offer some pretty awesome outcomes in the three WeatherTech Sports Car Championship classes in terms of champions. I love that Dane Cameron, probably the least known and maybe even the least rated among the Acura Team Penske drivers, and Juan Montoya, whose tepid enthusiasm uh, for all things, maybe it's mistaken for a lack of real fire-burning passion in his belly, I love the fact that that side of the Acura Team Penske effort came away with the championship. And so no disrespect to uh, friends Elio Castroneves or Ricky Taylor in the other car, but just in terms of popularity and maybe expectation, I like the fact that Dane proved Dane's now a three-time champion in IMSA is what since it was came to life in 2014. I mean, just phenomenal to think this young cat who's kind of quiet, funny. I mean, he's hilarious, but he's just not a big showy personality. But Dane is just a beast of an operator. And Montoya, just proving yet again that this guy is just an all-time great. I love that result for them. Looking to GTLM, I really loved the fact that the team demonstrating the most fun, the most flavor and character in the Porsche GT program. The fact that Earl Bamber and Lawrence Vantour won the title, Pile and Tandy came second. I thought that that was good on them. That was they just put forth an amazing effort throughout the year. Loved the fact, probably more than anything. That in GTD, Meyer Shank Racing won the freaking championship with Mario Fombarker and Trent Hunman. And this is Michael Shank's first championship ever in anything with one of his teams, dating back to the mid to late 90s in open wheel racing. And so here they are having won. Fantastic, I would say. Uh, and having only won one race during the year with that entry. But they put together, I think, four, three or four second-place finishes. And it was a, a scholarly championship, not one based on beating up everyone with constant victories. It's really impressive to see what they did, how they did it, the lineup that did it. 
and also this team that has been trying to win titles for a long time with prototypes, open wheel, indie car, yada yada, uh, got that done. So I thought that there was a, a feel good element to that. So yeah, honestly, looking at all North American sports car racing, the three championship outcomes in IMSA, I thought those were pretty darn fantastic. Why don't we grab one or two more, Graham, and then say farewell for this week's episode? All good. Uh, would you like me to grab one and you want to get, grab another? Sure. Uh, let's go with... It's another right to another question. Actually, no. We'll, we'll leave that one just in case you want to fancy that one. But uh, Entropy Nebula. Another great... Uh, what cruel parents you've had. Uh, are the rumors of Blancpain ending their sponsorship of various GT series true? Who could replace them? Uh, they're absolutely true. Uh, Blancpain, after a long association with Stefan Mattel's organization, is certainly pulling back from their title sponsorship of a number of championships. Who can replace them? They won't be replaced. Uh, they won't be replaced in the uh, the way that they currently are identified as the title uh, sponsor of the series. You're going to see a lot more publicity and a lot more around the World Challenge product. Uh, MPs talked about this before. That is the principal reason, quite aside from the presence in the North American marketplace. The uh, the acquisition of that trademark is something that was very important to the uh, steps forward that Stefan Mattel wants to take worldwide with branding uh, his product. You are going to see no title sponsor ahead of World Challenge America, World Challenge Europe, World Challenge Asia. You might see World Challenge Europe powered by or World Challenge Asia powered by. Uh, and my guess would be for the time being, that's most likely to be something along the lines of one of their existing partners, i.e. Pirelli. Uh, but yet, Blompan's days as a title sponsor are numbered. Sounds to me like we need to get to work and fire in a proposal because I like the sound of the Weekend Sports Cars World Challenge GT America, right? Uh, inside the Sports Car East. Paddock. East. Exactly. No, East. Yes. East. GT4 Sprint X. Uh, yeah. I'll grab Jordan Hopwood as the last question, Graham, who asked, why is ride height regulated in motorsports? It says, I understand that one car running lower than the rest gives it an advantage, gives an advantage to that car. But why isn't uh, it ever allowed for cars to just go as low as they want? Because if everyone had the same advantage, it wouldn't be unfair anymore. Well, the last part is part of the reason why some series have chosen to do this, Jordan. And I must admit, I am not a huge fan, but yeah. So if we're talking spec or spec-ish, all right, I get it. NASCAR, IndyCar. All right, I get that you want everyone to work within the same general limitations. So, okay, I can understand why spec-minded people would require that for specish cars. Where I can see this being something in sports cars, more on the GT front that is called for, it does come back to the BOP-ish mindset of, well... A BMW M8 sits, just rests on the ground in a different manner than, say, a Ford GT. If you look at what would be required to get the BMW crazy low to perform at a more optimal handling 
tire management, load management, everything management capacity to make up for its height, width, girth, and everything, you would probably want to let it run lower than everything else. To do that, though, the amount of modifications to the suspension, to the uprights, to pickup points, to drop the car down and not have the suspension arms basically looking like you know they're holding their hands up in the air require a lot of change very likely would also involve a lot of change to the bodywork to accommodate the overall chassis riding lower tires have to go somewhere which would be up all of a sudden you no longer have production-ish bodywork which is a gt3-ish gte type thing so i can understand why you would look to set ride height at a place for a class or for individual vehicles that's somewhat commonplace, if not identical for everyone, just to try and prevent not the low cars, not the low sleek Huracons and F488s and whatnot that are already seemingly on the ground, but the bigger cars that weren't necessarily designed to be roller skates from the outset. I would say that's probably one of the big reasons. Other thing, too, this is a generalism, of course. Sure is easy if you could just say, all right, everybody in this class, your minimum ride height is two inches. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of, all right, this model from this year and this Evo spec is this, but, oh, here's the same model but a year later and a different spec and it's that. Don't, Don't underestimate the laziness. When it comes to writing rules at some point in time, it sure is easy if you just make it one thing, because then it's kind of hard to forget. So I don't, I mean, I understand the reason why this is done. Understanding Jordan and agreeing, those would be very different things. So, meh. Going to invoke Juan Montoya to close your show, Graham. It is what it is. What else should we tell folks? What are you doing? What, What are we telling them to look for, to follow on the good old daily sports car front? Well, our daily sports car and I hope on racer.com in the next few days, we've got a couple of things coming. One is the answer to a question we didn't uh, answer on the show, which is to do with GT3 and who's at risk of losing that homologation with production totals. Uh, LMP3 and said a little late, but uh, is coming your way uh, is uh, an update on the four projects for the 2020 cars and um, a trouble potentially for one of those four uh, cars and beyond that uh, Stephen Kilby preparing something he's waiting for a bit of feedback from our good friends at the ACO about the opinion that uh, very many of the big teams have of having their LMP2 cars reeled in beyond that uh, next weekend is going to be all about Shanghai again and the Asia Le Mans series uh, will have, but I think just about by the time this uh, this goes live, maybe a few hours later, confirmed entry list for the 2019-2020 Asia Le Mans series. I can tell you it's going to be mid-20s for the full season. There will be some additional cars out to play for individual races beyond that. Can't wait for it. You know, let's just throw this in at the end, assuming that very few people are listening. I heard from a, a very solid source that plans for multiple Ford GTs in privateer hands to turn up at the Rolex 24 at Daytona in 12 hours of Sebring? Not happening. All right. Oof. I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin. This is the Week in Sports Cars brought to you by Cooper Tires, 
and the Justice Brothers. We're going to get to that address to the public toilet where all Stephen Kilby merchandise is sold. We'll speak to you next week.